0: Peace doesn't mean the absence of conflict. Peace means the tension of opposites. Land and sea, life and death, leader and follower. Favor one over the other, and you'll actually end up creating conflict. Hi. I'm Brian Pearson, and you are in the cave. Get your motor running, head out on the highway, looking for adventure, and whatever comes our way, yeah. Welcome to the Mystic Cave, the summer edition. I'm reading from my novel, Passion Tide, published by Path Books in 2002. With his first Sunday morning church services behind him, David has continued to explore the strangeness of his new world, as well as the estrangement he now feels from his own family. This is Chapter 4, Part 1 week. As the weeks passed, it was becoming clear to David that the weather was taking a permanent turn for the worse. The low cloud banks that had been gathering on the horizon were now moving inland, cloaking the town with a grey mist by day and with muffled rainfall by night, the foghorn droning its sombre warning in the wet darkness. Winter was coming. And with it, the winter rains and storms that bring over 12 feet of rain each year to this part of the world, though David was told it could easily be more. The town was battening down the hatches, preparing for the coming onslaught. But the darkening days gradually fell into a rhythm, which suited David just fine, a man of routine. In the mornings, he would have his meditative sit up in the attic, then walk into town for a newspaper, sometimes taking it into the pen where he would order toast and coffee and, if the day was particularly gloomy, a slab of homemade pie as well. He was sure to give a nod to the old guys, who returned the gesture. He would return home by way of the post office. Mid-morning, the mail was still in the process of being sorted, but this meant that he could come again in the afternoon and thus provide himself another anchor for the day. The post office clerk's name was Denise. David had learned in his first conversation with her that she was a single mother of four children, that she had lived here all her life, that she had seen a lot of ministers come and go, and that Tuesday was bingo night at the Army, Navy, and Air Force Veterans Hall. He should come by some evening, she told him, and get to know some people. Her chattiness made him feel welcome, and he was grateful for it. Back at the rectory, he would sort through the mail, quickly casting aside the ubiquitous flyers and solicitations. He tore open anything resembling personal correspondence, though that was rare. Then he was ready to get down to work, planning his sermon, choosing prayers, and working up the order of service for the coming Sunday. He found the task of worship preparation more challenging here than in a conventional Anglican church. No longer could he simply rely on the prayer book to tell him what to do, especially on United Church Sundays, he had to build the service from the ground up, using the week's appointed scripture readings as a foundation. But the task satisfied him, and it was often with an artist's sense of pride that he delivered his latest creation to Mimi's door, along with more helpful suggestions for the layout of the bulletin than she could possibly execute. For his afternoon rounds, David split his days between Euclid and Tofino. In Euclid, he made home visits to some of the older members, and to others referred to him by parishioners. That's how we got to know Maisie. Her husband, Norm, had died shortly before David arrived. The bitterness she harbored was not about his passing, his health having been in decline for years— Her wrath was reserved for the tree huggers who had caused the stress which in turn had contributed to his dying at only 59. Norm drove truck, as they said, for a logging company. It was a good job and Norm was good at it. He was bringing a load of logs down the mountain the day the protesters set up camp at the bridge. No one had told him, He rounded the last turn, 150 tons of downward momentum carrying him home. There, spread before him, was a small city of tents, women and babes in arms tramping through the mud. He couldn't stop. There was nowhere to turn. He pulled long and loud on the horn and headed straight for the bridge. What else could he do? As he sped across the bridge, his brakes smoking, He saw in his side-view mirrors people flying out from both sides of his passing rig. It was a miracle he hadn't killed someone. Maisie said his hands shook for days. Then he read about himself in the papers, how a logging truck had tried to mow down a camp of peaceful protesters. He quit the next day and never worked again. In Tofino, David acquainted himself with the small ten-bed hospital. There he met Ruth, a nurse, but also a strident environmentalist. She had come to join in the fight against the logging of old growth forests and Clackwood Sound, but she so fell in love with the natural beauty and vitality of the place that she never got away again. There were seldom patients to visit, so David would stand at the nurse's station and visit with Ruth. If the world were seen as a single organism, she explained to him then we would no more rape the earth than we would our own mothers. It gives us life. We should walk respectfully, reverently. It turned out that Ruth had been on the bridge that day when Norm's rig had come barreling through. She was one of those who were sent flying in its wake, one of those Norm had seen through his side-view mirrors. She landed on a pile of rocks, breaking her arm, something the reporters picked up on for their stories— It was a small price to pay, she said, to save the forests. When he felt he had done his visiting for the afternoon, David would go for long walks. On Euclid days, this meant clambering over the rocky headlands on the rugged ocean side of the peninsula. David would kneel and peer into the deep, clear tidal pools to watch the tiny hermit crabs scuttling and scurrying about. He would prod the tentacles of the green and red sea anemones and marvel at the reflexes of these deceptively flower-like carnivores who, sensing danger, fold in on themselves, closing up tight like a bell pepper. Somewhere near here, he had been told, in the deeper channels, octopus launched their young so they would learn the ways of the tide and grow to claim their place on the food chain— David steadied himself on rocky ledges to catch a glimpse of them swimming about in the dark waters, though he figured that fall was likely not the season of their infancy. On Tofino days, he would stroll the misty beaches in the national park, stooping to inspect whatever the tide had left behind that day. He examined the scallop shells and the miniature conches, pocketing as mementos the more unusual specimens. The smooth-sculpted driftwood was like some sort of natural Rorschach test. This one a woman's thigh, this one's a jester's hat. He pocketed the woman's thigh. On each expedition, David was awakened to a childlike sense of wonder. Every new discovery surprised and delighted him. He bought himself a rubberized raincoat with a hood for his afternoon walks, his wool duffel coat being of little use in this wet climate. He also purchased a pair of black rubber boots, wellies, he had called them in his childhood, fishermen's Oxfords, the sales clerk had called them, in the tiny nook that served as the clothing department at the co op. One day, as he was eating his lunch at the kitchen table, David heard what sounded like the barking of dogs down in the harbor, the sharp, distinctive sounds echoing across the inlet. But by now, he knew better. Hoping this might be his first chance to observe a sea lion up close, he jumped into his boots, thrust his arms into the sleeves of his slicker, and dashed across the backyard and down to the refueling dock at the waterfront. Running out onto the high planked dock, he found himself staring down upon not one sea lion, but an entire family. Eight or ten California sea lions, identifiable by their dark coloring and their protrusive foreheads, were frolicking around the hull of a large dragger that was refueling. Rolling about in the frigid waters, they were performing for their supper, or for their hopes of supper, their dark, shimmering eyes fixed constantly on the boat. David could not suppress a broad grin as he leaned over the wooden railing, his hands thrust deep into his pockets, his collar turned up against the cold. This was the sort of sight that might merit only a glance as you pass to the concrete water tanks at the zoo on the way to see the gorillas. But this was not a zoo. This was the real thing. And he was being granted the incredible opportunity of standing in this spot, of witnessing this scene, a scene to which no camera could ever do justice. His was the irreplaceable thrill of being there. The stiff wind blowing up the inlet from the open ocean was doing its best to dissuade him from lingering, sending shivers across the surface of his skin and bringing water to his eyes. So, yielding to his discomfort, he took a deep, satisfying breath and turned to leave. But now a new wonder offered itself to David. From above, he heard them before he saw them. Two bald eagles suspended in the air overhead, riding the incoming southwester. Their magnificent wings spread wide, the wingspans measuring easily the full height of his body. They were so close, he could hear the wind rustling through their flight feathers. Unconcerned with his presence, they were neither hunting nor hurrying, but, like the sea lions, appeared simply to be enjoying the moment. They were playing. Forgetting the damp and the cold, David stood gaping on the dock beneath them, transfixed by the sight of these proud mythical creatures, borne aloft so effortlessly by the steady invisible hand of the wind. Was he really allowed to be here, David asked himself, to witness all this? He was intoxicated by the natural drama unfolding around him every day. It made him want to see more, to experience everything. He began to venture farther and farther out on the rocky outcrops, edging closer to the slippery interface of sea and shore, to feel on his face the spray of the pounding waves and the power of the rising wind. David's mornings, then, were taken up with pleasant industry. His afternoons were filled with wonder. It was the evenings that proved difficult with darkness descending now by supper time, David faced the falling of night as an encircling gloom. The events of the past weeks crept out from the shadows and followed him through the empty house, demanding some sort of accounting, which he was unable to give. Without television, something he never thought he would miss, he wandered aimlessly from room to vacant room, searching for something to engage him. It was in the evenings that David would write his letters home. He wrote his mother and his sister. He wrote individual letters to Paul and to Catherine and, of course, to Beverly, struggling to make their separation come off sounding normal, as if he were merely away on a retreat, soon to return, bearing in his arms gifts for all. He and Beverly were not addressing the real issues, and he knew it. They were keeping their hailing frequencies open. That was all. Later in the evenings he would read, the sad remnants of his library offering him only the driest of provisions. One night he turned in desperation to several old binders he had discovered in a cupboard in the study. David blew the dust from the covers and began flipping through the pages, which contained the minutes of meetings, the financial reports, and the membership lists that constituted the official records of the Long Beach pastoral charge from the days before the Anglican and United congregations joined into one. Turning a blue-lined page dating back to the 1960s, some yellowed newspaper clippings fell out. The clippings concerned a United Church minister back in the mid-60s, David's predecessor by some 35 years, who a few weeks before he was to leave the coast to begin doctoral studies at Oxford, headed out for a three-day excursion by boat from Euclid to Clackwit Sound, intending to do some beachcombing. But he never made it. His empty boat was found soon enough, all the equipment and motor in working order. It was four months before his body washed ashore, his red life jacket still secured around his bloated remains. David was intrigued. He searched back through the minutes for some clue as to who this man was, but unlike the rectors of Anglican parishes, who often have a dominant role in church meetings, this minister was mentioned only in passing. It was reported that he opened a meeting with a reading from Scripture, that he made some suggestions for a new purchase, that he closed a meeting with prayer. In the pages that followed the clippings, after his death in other words, he was mentioned only twice in the official record— and both times indirectly. One was a line item saying that the church had agreed to buy the ditto machine back from his widow. The other was a motion several weeks later, granting her three months of her husband's salary. The motion passed. So this is what it's like to be dead and gone, David thought. A transfer of ownership, a payout of funds, but otherwise forgotten. He thought of his own congregation back in Ontario. How were they getting on, he wondered. Did they miss him? Did they talk about him? Did they even think of him now, a month later? Or were they smitten by the interim priest who, in all likelihood, was already dismantling all that he, David, had been trying so obsessively to establish? David removed the newspaper clippings from the binder and pinned them to the bulletin board above the desk. For the brief time he was here... He would remember this man. It was the least he could do. Reluctantly, David began picking up cheap paperback novels from the racks near the checkout counters at the co-op, the popular pulp of airport authors writing to advance a quick plot, not to deepen understanding. But they did serve to divert his attention, to keep the shadows at bay, and he came to count on the predictable antics of the cardboard characters to lead him into weariness And finally, into sleep. Of course, Sunday had always been the big day of the week for David. Everything pointed to Sunday, and his work week did not end until Sunday ended. But here, Sunday seemed strangely understated. People's expectations were low. His congregations seemed content merely with his showing up. Over time, this had an enervating effect on David— and his own expectations began dropping a few notches. One would be hard-pressed to call it laid-back, exactly, but David's officiating style was changing as he settled into his new role, as he was getting to know his people and they were getting to know him. Up in Tofino, they seemed actually to be enjoying the sight of their earnest new minister in his flowing robes, gliding in behind the organ to lead the hymns, then sliding out again to take his place at the lectern or at the altar. In Euclulet, the musical repertoire suffered from Ernie's technical limitations, the congregation singing far more gospel choruses and campfire ditties than proper hymns. But at least they were singing, and David along with them. David couldn't help feeling that his preaching was suffering from the dearth of scholarly resources he had at his disposal— He found himself speaking more from personal observation than from official church positions or established theological dogmas. When he referred to situations that he encountered here on the coast, the brokenness of the native communities, the contentious confusion about logging rights, the new fishing restrictions that were fast destroying a way of life, he did so with the care and respect of someone who was aware he did not really know what he was talking about someone who is asking questions rather than offering answers. He wished he could show them the stuff he was really made of as a preacher, quoting entire passages in Greek, referring to the early church fathers with their strange exotic names like Tertullian, Origen, Clement of Alexandria, or using impressive scholarly terms like eschatological and anthropomorphic. But this new, simpler approach had its own rewards, He found that now, whenever he cast a glance out across the faces of his tiny congregations, they were looking back at him. They were paying attention. It was becoming more a conversation and less a monologue. This was confirmed by the remarks they would make later in the week as they passed him in an aisle at the co-op or waited in line behind him at the post office. One day, a complete stranger stopped him on the street in Tofino to say she had heard that he preached a good sermon on Sunday about whales or something, she thought. He himself couldn't remember preaching about whales, but then, when you start preaching off the cuff, without a net, as it were, you can no longer be altogether sure just what you've said after it's done. He accepted the compliment with thanks, the first real compliment he could remember receiving in years, and his first ever compliment... By hearsay, someone at last seemed to be listening. David could not help but feel annoyed by the movement of the curtains in the house next door, day after day, parting slightly each time he went to or from the rectory. He never saw anyone, but someone was in there, watching him, and this bothered him. But even more troubling was the thought that they had nothing better to do with their time than to sit by that window all day long as the world went by. Pulling up at the rectory one day after an afternoon of pastoral visiting and seaside exploration, David once again saw the curtains part in the front window of the little white cottage next door. This is ridiculous, he thought. He got out of the car, walked over, and knocked on the door. An old man appeared in the doorway. He wore overalls and a thick wool sweater, moth-eaten and smeared with soot and grease. Hi, David said. I'm Father uh, um, David—no, sorry, that's just David, David Corcoran. I'm living in the rectory next door, as you're aware, so I thought I should just come over and introduce myself to you. The old man studied David through small, dark eyes that peered out from deep-set hollows. There was nothing to him, just leathered skin stretched across bone and several days' growth of stubble on his face. He had once been a big man, David guessed, from his bent frame. I guess you'd better come in then, he said to David, turning back into the house, which opened directly into the kitchen. A table and chair pulled up tight to the window. No, no, that's not necessary, David said. I I just wanted to meet you and to let you know who it is who's been coming and going every day next door. The old man turned around and looked at him again. He said nothing. "I, I didn't catch your name, David said. I didn't tell you my name, the old man replied. Right, David said, chastened. He waited for his neighbor to speak. It's Cecil, he said finally. What's yours again? David, David Corcoran. I'm the new minister at St. Aidan's, at least for a few months. David felt that an actual conversation with Cecil might require more energy than he had to give. I'll have you over for coffee someday, he offered, but I should go now. Take care. David was aware of Cecil watching him from the door as he made his way back to the rectory. In the city, David had his hair cut every three weeks, usually on a Friday, and he saw no reason to break that pattern now. So, one Friday, he got out the slim paperback booklet that served as the area's phone book and searched for the hair salons. There were only two listed. One was Lucille's Hair Boutique and Submarine Sandwiches in Euclid. The mental picture this evoked of meatball sandwiches and airborne clumps of hair brought on an involuntary gagging reflex. David called the other listing, Randy Hair Design, even though it was up in Tofino. A male voice answered and said that yes, he had an opening that very afternoon. Just before three o'clock, David showed up at Randy's, which was in the back of a curio shop, itself tucked in behind the coffee pod, one certainly had to know where to look. David stepped over the legs of the young drifters who lounged outside on the porch, their dogs and guitars strewn about nearby. As he entered the shop, Randy came out from behind the partition separating the sales area from the salon. He was tall and good looking, his blonde hair carefully sculpted, close cropped on the sides, longer on top, swept over to one side. Randy introduced himself, greeting his new customer in a breezy style that assumed familiarity. Cher's greatest hits was playing on a CD player. He invited David to take a seat for a few minutes. Randy returned to the back, picking up his conversation with another client. No, God, he was saying, we saw her in Vancouver. She was fabulous. I mean, the outfits. She's so outrageous. She had this one hairpiece. It had to be at least three feet high. Everyone just went crazy. Do you want me to take a little more off the sides? When it was his turn, David slipped into the hair-washing chair. Randy tipped it so that David's head tilted backward into the basin, and he began massaging shampoo into David's scalp, the warm water hissing as it ran past his ears. So, where are you from? Randy asked in a sing-song voice designed to lead directly to personal, revelatory conversation, like pillow talk. Toronto, David answered. Toronto, Randy repeated. I lived there for precisely one winter. Couldn't wait to leave. Then I spent four years in Vancouver, but even that was too much for me. That's just me, I guess. I'm not much of a city person. Are you staying here in Tofino? No, David answered. I'm, I'm down in Uclulet. On holiday? Randy asked. Not really, David said, the suds running back down his head into the sink, chased by the tiny jet streams of rinse water. Doing some work here, then? Yes, in a way, David said, but just for six months. So, what do you do? Randy pressed on, sitting David up and leading him over to the hair cutting chair. Well, actually, I'm a priest, an Anglican priest. He let that hang for a moment before adding... But I'm acting as the United Church minister here as well. I'm doing a an interim ministry at St. Aidan's in Euclid and St. Columbus here in Tofino. St. Columbus, Randy exclaimed with interest. Oh, I just adore that little church. I've always meant to look inside. So you can tell I'm not much of a churchgoer myself. David saw that Randy was inspecting his new customer in the mirror. David glanced in the mirror himself, curious to see what Randy was seeing. What he discovered looking back at himself was a clean-shaven, middle-aged man with unimaginatively short-cropped hair, pleasant enough, a little jowly, but with something in his eyes. Something fleeting, a secret, perhaps. "'So, you're a minister. You're from Toronto,' Randy was saying. "'Well, that's interesting.' Yes,' David continued, encouraged. "'But I have to admit, everything feels very different here from Ontario. I don't know what it is exactly.' I'm sure that's true, Randy said, nodding sympathetically. Randy was still studying David in the mirror. Married, he asked, beginning to make little snips here and there with the shears. Yes, David replied. "Hm. Children? Two. Boys or girls? Both. How old? Uh, Thirteen and fifteen. Well, soon to be sixteen. And they're here with you? David shook his head. "Hm," Randy said again, trying to put the pieces together. "'So what would bring you way out here on your own?' he asked him. "'Why didn't your family come with you?' David swallowed hard. Uh, "'I think I just um needed a break,' he said, "'trying to maintain his equilibrium while the ground fell away beneath him. I, "'I don't really know what to say. It's just one of those things.' He stole a glance at Randy in the mirror. He was saying too much. "'I'm sorry,' he said. "'I, I guess that doesn't make much sense.' "'No, no,' Randy reassured him. "'That's okay.' "'We all need to get away sometimes, "'and this is certainly the place to get away too. "'Randy kept snipping as he went on. "'Did you know we get almost a million visitors here each year?' he asked. "'David opened his eyes wide in response, "'fearing that any words would reveal a tremor in his voice. "'It's true,' Randy said. "'People come here from all over, from the States, a lot from Germany, "'and from all across Canada, too. "'They come not just because our dollar is low,' They come because this is a very special place, a very spiritual place. Some say it has healing properties. Do you know about feng shui? David shook his head. It's Chinese, Randy went on. It means wind and water, something like that. And it has to do with the earth's energy. Well, this place has tons of it, or so I'm told. He patted David on the shoulder. No, you're going to love it here. It'll be good for you. You'll see. Odd, David thought, that he should be sharing himself so readily with a total stranger But perhaps this was the advantage of being strangers After all, for centuries, this had been the secret of the confessional Randy was like a priest in his booth, just out of sight An anonymous but encouraging voice saying And what else, my son? In time, David felt, he just might be inclined to tell him We can climb so high I never want to die I've been reading from my novel, Passion Tide. David's plans for his new congregation begin to take shape as he settles into the patterns of his new life and ministry. But will the ways of a big city minister help him here? And will the demands of his soul be satisfied by the demands of his job? I'm Brian Pearson. This has been the Mystic Cave.